When Chuck Rossi joined Facebook in 2008, he was one of the most experienced release engineers at the company. As Chuck began to explore the engineering practices of the organization, he was surprised, confused, and impressed by the release engineering system that he encountered at Facebook. Release engineering is the process by which software is released to users. As software is being developed, it moves through a series of testing environments. In these test environments, the software can be studied using simulated inputs that can help developers discover software bugs. This is often known as the continuous delivery or the continuous integration process as well. Chuck had come to Facebook from Google. At Google, the crown jewel in the early days was Google Web Search, which had a regimented release process. At Facebook, the crown jewel was Facebook.com. Chuck found that the release process for Facebook.com in those early days when he joined in 2008, it was much different than the release process for Google Web Search. Chuck joins the show to talk about how release engineering at Facebook differs from that of Google or anywhere else that he's seen, and how the company has constantly evolved its code deployment process. Chuck also describes Facebook's pivot to mobile and how the bottlenecks in the mobile app release process threatened Facebook's ability to iterate and release quickly. This show provided some amazing perspective on continuous delivery, and it will be useful to anyone who is working on figuring out their, quote, DevOps process. Chuck has a wealth of knowledge and context about the modern software industry, and his experience during the mobile pivot was pretty instructive about the differences between mobile application releases and desktop web application releases. I think you'll enjoy this episode. Chuck Rossi, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great. Thanks. Uh, Glad to be here. The last 14 years of your career have focused on release engineering. What happens during a software release? Well, it's uh, it can be a complicated process. It can be a very simple process. And I think the important thing is that you have people in place who know how to deal with the intricacies of, of getting software together to be shipped on hand and uh, competent people to do that. It's the last step before you, you know, all the work that you or your developers do to get what you created out the door has to go through some sort of release process to get wherever it's going to go. So I focused my career kind of perfecting that. You know, we can go into the details of what it means to put something together, both for front-end, back-end, mobile, what have you. How has that software release process changed over the last 20 years? So quite a bit. So ironically enough, my first experience with this was as an intern in college. My college had a a mandatory co-op program. So I had to do a year of internships, and my second one was with IBM in Danbury, Connecticut, and I kind of fell into the release role as an intern. And let me tell you, you know, that was 19, I want to say 88. <laughs> so the process changed a lot from those days. After that, I worked for IBM, and I was a foot soldier in the great uh, operating system wars of the, of the late uh, 1980s, early 1990s, which turned into the Unix wars of the 1990s. And I was the release uh, engineer for part of IBM that was working with the Open Software Foundation. 
So here you had a release process. We were building a rival version of Unix to compete against the evil empire of AT&T and System 5. And we were the, the BSD freedom fighters. And we were going to, uh, we were trying for operating system dominance back in those days, at least to the Unix platform. And that process, that release process involved me porting changes to libc, packaging the whole Unix system from the kernel to the libraries to the utilities, and getting that out for testing and, and evolution as these operating systems were being developed. And this is a multi-month <laughs> process. It was, you know, if I made changes to libc, I would see those changes in quote-unquote production in, in, you know, maybe eight to ten months. So that's where I started from the release engineering kind of world. And that was the old school, I guess you would call it the waterfall, kind of date-based, you know, release schedule kind of thing. And then as I started to go into startups, that obviously didn't work. My first quasi-startup was Silicon Graphics, where we were developing an interactive television system. I did more development work there, but did some release deployment stuff there. Here we have a more rapid system where it's a lot of prototyping and, and getting things in the hands of our partners and test customers. But that still was was weeks. Well, I think we could spend a lot of time on your background in release engineering. I, I mean, it would be, maybe we could do that at a later date or something, talking about your experience at VMware as well. I think the release engineering process at VMware when you were there from 1999 to 2004, I'm sure that's an interesting story to tell. But to fast forward to the modern internet era, you were at Google from 2004 to 2008. You were one of the early release engineers there. What practices around release engineering did Google pioneer? So there was uh, probably nothing formal, but there was the first time I got exposed to a more rigid date-based release system, release system that worked pretty well. I was working with like AdWords and, and Google Maps and, and some of those systems, and we were releasing those. And we had a kind of a two-week cycle for releasing AdWords, which worked relatively well. It was a very human-intensive way to do things, but that was my first exposure to a good kind of managed system with like good TPMs and PMs and engineering that was all on board with this process, a very solid source control system, which was, you know, Perforce in those days, but quite, you know, modified and beefy version of Perforce. So those concepts of that fixed cycle, the two-week cycle kind of perfected was what I experienced at Google. You joined Facebook in 2008. How did release engineering at Facebook differ from that previous job at Google? So everything kind of changed when I went to Facebook. It's like you kind of took all the rules and threw them away and started fresh. Uh, there were maybe 300, 400 people when I started at Facebook and maybe 100 or so engineers. And I don't think you know, very few of them had ever held a job before, including the CEO. So they were, you know, all the founders were just out of school and they were, were winging it and they were doing what they needed to do to get this very scrappy, fast growing, you know, really exciting place on its feet. So there was no, I want to say there wasn't, wasn't any thought to it, but there was a, it was a very organic, like, we're just going to get stuff going, which meant SCPing PHP files out to the servers. That was your release process at times. So I came in there and saw this and was faced with a, with a decision. I had 20 years of experience basically coming in to Facebook at that point. I thought, okay, do I kind of lay down the law and go to the best practices I learned at places like VMware and Google and SGI, IBM, wherever, 
or do I kind of go with this organic new thing that they're working on here and, and let these, these crazy kids go and do what they want and hope for the best? And we pretty much did the second thing. The good news is the people there were really on top of this. They, they treated release engineering, the release process as a first-class citizen since the day I got there. And that was important. It wasn't some like afterthought of, okay, we need to have some build monkey, you know, pump this stuff out. You know, some of the best engineers in the company, including like some of the founders were working on the release process. And I learned the release process from, from, you know, one of the founders. So that attitude of release being first class citizen, getting proper tooling, proper attention was what led us kind of go wild and invent and, and be very aggressive to build a release process that met the needs of this company and its growth. How did the Facebook product compare to the Google products in terms of how it impacted the ideal release cycle? The Google product, the, the most, you know, the crown jewel was, was GWIS, the you know, Google web search, which uh, had, its, had a very regimented release process. Uh, I didn't touch that. That was a very kind of, a lot of SREs worked on that. And it was a very delicate prescribed kind of piece of work. So this, the Facebook release process, the crown jewel at that time was facebook.com. And it was a little bit the opposite. It was always in motion, always, you know, on the brink of, of disaster, but always given hundred percent attention. But the speed at which we would do things was the main difference between kind of what I had experienced previously and, and uh, what Facebook started to, to do. And that really set the company culture for a mindset of, you know, the move fast mindset where we're going to be able to move fast. Things might, do, might not go well, but we can fix them quickly. We can react quickly. We can develop quickly. We can do product release quickly. So, you know, that's the main difference I found from previous places to, to Facebook. Did the Facebook code base have many tests when you joined? So hard to say when I joined, it was more organic. It did, Facebook did buy into the whole idea of test-driven development. So there was, again, the, the core culture that you wrote your unit tests, you wrote your tests with your code. And the tools, famously Fabricator, the tools were, were geared to help promote this. So new people coming in and experienced developers would always be flagged if they didn't have tests with their code delivery. So the, the culture had some things built in to give it at least at the base level of your, of your testing pyramid, kind of the bottom levels were, were well, ha- had a good foundation. So there was that culture of, yes, they're, they're, the developer is responsible for the tests. And this, this kind of, this is well before the quote unquote DevOps kind of model or mindset came along. So we were organically had this DevOps idea, at least it's, it's kind of core tenant of, of developers are worrying about operational and testing and, and, you know, deployment things well before it was kind of a thing. There is a platonic ideal of a release process where you push some code and a fleet of unit tests run across that code and it verifies that this is not going to break the software build and then it advances to 
you know, 1% of the audience and then to 2% of the audience and then gradually increases to 100% of the audience as the software increasingly gets deployed without showing any kinds of anomalies in the world. There's also an optional procedure in that release process where perhaps somebody is actually manually testing things and clicking around and they are in that 1% of the audience that the code has been released to and they're just working with that code or working with that new software environment, that new deployment themselves before it gets rolled out to the entire audience. So I think in in many cases, the, the release process, the modern release process includes some amount of testing, like unit testing, and then some amount of, of manual testing. Could you give me your perspective on, on how much that aligns with uh, with what you believe is the modern release process and specifically what you saw at Facebook? Yeah, this is a sensitive area, um, and I'll give you my I'll give you my non politically correct answers. So yeah, you're exactly right. There is that tension between the desire to manually test to make everything perfect and and go out. And I think we're past that because your your model is basically saying we can deal with manual testing if it's asynchronous, and I'm okay with that. And this was a big fight at Facebook, and I'm sure other places. I've I've given talks to zillions of places about kind of this this process. And for the more established companies, or the ones that have been around a long time. They, I tell them, like, if your release process depends on a manual step before you release, a manual test step before you release, your release process is fundamentally broken, okay? You cannot be agile. Anything, you cannot be continuous, whatever. You cannot do anything if you have manual testing part of your, your deploy regimen. And, you know, that is a problem for some people. They can't get their head past it. So at Facebook, yeah, we didn't have a quote unquote QA group to speak of. Like there was no, you know, we had some contractors and some specialty QA people. I mean, Oculus is a famous example, right? You can't like for a hardware device like uh, like the Rift or for any of the Oculus devices, you fundamentally have to sit some poor soul in a chair and spin them around and see if they get sick or, or whatever it is, right? But we would only use the kind of a manual test system or, or group for very special things like the, the product is too new, the unit tests aren't fully there, or the, or the testing regimen um, has some special thing that we can't um, do quite well automatically yet, we'll patch it with some manual tests. But most likely they're going to be asynchronously done. They're not going to be part of my release process where I'm going to wait for a test result to come back from any sort of manual testing. So that, that model, I've seen have success at a huge scale at Facebook. I mean, we were basically able to take the web front end, which has thousands of changes a day, um, and move it from a one-week release process to a three-times-a-day release process to a quasi-continuous release process by the time I left, all without you know, synchronous manual testing. Like you say, it's more about having um, teams be able to test it in the canary phase uh, along with the other canary uh, tier. Describe the release process when you joined in, in, in a little more detail. What was the cadence? What were the bottlenecks? What did a release look like? So Facebook came up with this way of releasing. It's a, it's a branch cherry pick model. And I've used it in other places to some degree, but Facebook did it at a degree that was pretty huge. And the branch cherry pick model, I really like. And at a certain scale from zero to maybe a a thousand developers, I would advocate for this for kind of front end or even back end release. 
the model is basically you make a you make a a weekly release branch, and once a week is about as long as you possibly want to do that. And for for Facebook, for whatever random reason, it was Sunday at six p.m. We would cut a release branch using whatever you know dopey source control system you can tolerate, and after that branch is cut, you only take cherry picks from master. Um, and we had a tool that allowed developers after they checked in the master to say like, Hey, I don't want to wait till next Sunday to have this in the next week's release. This needs to go out before then. And I left it mostly up to the developers or PMs or whoever to decide if the risk was worth it. But here's the deal. My release engineers or me personally to begin with, but then my release engineers and I would make the final call on if we were going to take that cherry pick because those cherry picks would go out once a day. So the weekly release would go out basically on a Tuesday. That was about, in the end, it was about 10,000 diffs that got bundled up in that weekly cut. That was tested from the branch cut on Sunday and released on Tuesday. And then after Tuesday, so on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday, we would do these cherry picks. And we took about two to 400 cherry picks a day. But almost all of them were vetted to some degree by a release engineer or and eventually by a, by a ride-along uh, engineer as well. That process really worked well for quite a while. And it was only when it, uh, it started to fall over, we were, we were exceeding 1,000 diffs a day. We were exceeding four, five, 600 cherry picks a day. We realized the number of cherry picks and the number of commits are converging. <laughs> and that's when we made the announcement that we were going to go to a quasi-continuous uh, front-end release. And that's uh, what Facebook does now. So basically, there are no more branch cuts no more cherry pick model. You commit to master and master ships uh, every hour or so, every two hours. Facebook has a system called Push Karma, or at least it used to have that system. Can you explain what Push Karma is? Sure, that goes along with the cherry pick system. And it's, uh, I'm going to be clear, there's a lot of subjectivity that goes into uh, deciding which, which picks to take. I mean, there's objective things you can do as far as metrics to understand if the code is safe, but there is a subjective component that is critical. And that, again, are the humans involved. And when I took a cherry pick and it went disastrously wrong, is fine. I mean, the key was the person you know who committed the code was around to help me out. And in those days, we were using IRC to coordinate you know, when these pushes went out or when cherry picks were, were taken. I would only take a cherry pick if you were in IRC. So we had all these tools in IRC that would say, I'd push a button and, and there'd be an announcement like, hey, we're going to start this, this daily push and take these cherry picks and would call out the, the developers by name in, in IRC, which would alert them in their desktop. And if they said, if they responded in, by some way and saying, I'm, I'm here, I'm alive, I'm, I'm breathing, and, I, and their cherry pick request wasn't you know, too risky, so the majority of them weren't, we would take it. If they didn't respond, we didn't take the cherry pick. So it says, well, if you're not here, I'm not going to take your cherry pick because it's going to go live in, in you know, an hour. So if they did respond, we took the cherry pick, and it all exploded very poorly, and, it, and we had a bad experience, that's fine. But if we all did that, and they're nowhere to be found, and I'm getting no support, and they basically abandoned the release process... I remember that. And I, I had my own internal database of like, oh, yeah, this, this guy, this gal was, <laughs> was, was missing in action like multiple times. So when I got so many developers, I couldn't keep them all in my head. I made like this little secret star system on the cherry pick page. So next to every developer, it was like they all were born with four stars to their name. If a bad thing happened like that, we would 
basically give them the dislike button and they would lose half a star. And we would, we would log that. We would, a little window would come up and we'd type in like what happened. Like, hey, this really, really bad. You were nowhere to be found. We had to revert the whole thing. I hate you. <laughs> and that would go, you know, we'd click submit. It would go to the developer. It would go to the developer's manager and it would go to the kind of the performance review tool. This was very much a, a private <laughs> shaming, a private discussion between us. And its, it's intent was to basically make us more aware, make us all more uh, cognizant of, of the, uh, the gravity of the situation and the dependence that we have for developers to be the backbone of this. And when they're missing and things go wrong, that's, that should be corrected. So hopefully that's not too crazy. No one ever got fired or, you know, wasn't, it was mostly done in fun. Don't, don't overanalyze it, overthink it. But I don't know what your thoughts are in that system, but uh, that's what we did for a while. It sounds very useful. It's, you know, there's, there's this tension in kind of the the social networkification of the enterprise where in social networks people develop their reputation and the reputation is is mostly implicit right it's usually not explicit you know unless we're talking about like yelp businesses or yeah there was that company i think it was called like people for a while where it was like a yelp for people basically and then people just hated it so much they just were appalled by the idea that i think the company shut down or it had to shut down or something like that but people are very anxious about this idea of being kind of rated in a semi-public fashion but we we know that crowdsourcing works so it, it is this tension between utility and social uh, health, I suppose. Yeah, I agree. So my intent was not to embarrass anyone or, or not cause anyone trouble. This was all done privately. So no one could see anyone else's kind of rating or whatever. That would have been a, a much bigger HR issue if I had done that. So we were careful. I, I was very aware of kind of those issues that you've raised. And we never got too, too carried away. It was mostly done in fun. But you can see, this is interesting. So the system, we didn't really, you know, we started not using it as much, that kind of karma system. But what we did when we went to continuous deployment was, you know, no podcast would be complete if I didn't mention AI or ML or something. So I will mention it. So we had very rudimentary kind of ML. On, think about this. On commits, there's all this metadata you have of who did it, when they did it, what did they touch? What files did they touch? What I'm sure there's papers and, and analysis on this. So we wrote like just some simple kind of analysis of all these factors to come up with a diff risk profile. So for the continuous system where there is no chance to kind of look uh, as, as things are coming through, we wanted some like little gross, you know, gauge on is there more risk here than not? And again, there was some things you wouldn't expect and some things you did expect when we ran that system. It's still, you know, kind of being developed and kind of being figured out. But I, I really, you know, think there is some data in there and that metadata of when, how, where, what code, what code constructs, you know, there's so much data on, you know, we have a very good SEV review process when things go wrong, you know, call it a SEV, and we go back and analyze it, that data goes back in the system. So we know which files were touched, we know who touched it when and how and where and even where they were. So there's some interesting things to be done there. I would like to explore that some more. Right. So you're saying like, if there's a line of code, perhaps that writes to a core database, you know, that detects who your friends are or what the things in your newsfeed uh, are going to be. These might be very sensitive lines of code, and it would be useful if there was some metadata analysis of what kinds of lines of code or what specific lines of code have triggered 
high severity outages and high severity situations. Exactly. You could imagine looking at like a, you bring up a, a C++ file and you can see a heat map of like where risk is versus where it hasn't been historically. To come back to the, the social aspect of how company internal company dynamics work, when Nick, when Nick Schrock came on, he talked about this other social-like phenomenon within Facebook, uh, the idea of the influencer engineer, basically the idea that there were certain engineers that within Facebook, if they had an idea, they would marshal resources behind it whether or not other people came along for the ride and they would build reputation as somebody who can get stuff done and get stuff off the ground and eventually when they started doing you know this when this person would would develop such a strong positive reputation if they did something new people would just gravitate towards them and i just mentioned this as as another phenomenon in which the internal facebook engineering culture resembles the social networking world that Facebook has contributed so significantly to. And I'm wondering if if that resonates with you and if you have any other examples of ways in which Facebook embodies the world of social networking in terms of its engineering processes. Yeah, I know what Nick is is talking about there. And, uh, you know, there were definitely engineers who who had that persona and could rally things and and really get tremendous leaps. I guess you sometimes call them the 10x engineer, right? But with an added benefit of of being more of a leader or able to convince people to come on board, they were like the, they were a curse and and a blessing. And I, I have many examples. I probably can't get into details or mention names, but there were certainly people who I wanted to absolutely strangle at times because they literally took down the site with their shenanigans. And at the same time, I know the same person was the like a week ago, single-handedly brought the site back up when there was no hope of any of us understanding like what just happened, right? And there were dozens of examples of these people who were like, Ah, that guy again, I can't stand it. I, how did he manage to do that? And then a week later, like gives you this amazing tool that, that, you know, saves the day. That is a challenge for organizations. And like you say, you have a kind of a social strata, uh, that mimics some of the things we see in social networks, certainly within Facebook. And it is, if this is be more of a talk about how to, you know, be a good manager is you need to manage those clicks and manage those people because sometimes in Facebook had another series of examples of people who were very passionate about going in a certain direction. And this is at any company, actually, I've saw this at other companies and they're just not going in the direction that's great, you know, for the company or for the core mission. It's more of a, they get some more of a religious belief to go in a certain way and things like that can be problematic. And, and that's where you have a little bit more, conflict of personalities and, and people will, will, will go away mad and, and you might lose some folks who kind of religiously want to go a certain way, but, but management or the core mission doesn't quite align with that. Continuous delivery works pretty well for web applications and backend server applications. In the mobile environment, you have a release process that is gated by Google and Apple. And there's a process by which 
you as a mobile app developer have to release an app to the review process and then Apple or Google has a review process that they invoke on your mobile application. And this can be frustrating for mobile developers that want to move fast. Uh, it really slows down the, the mobile release process in, in some ways. How did the mobile release process work at Facebook? Okay, you want to you want to go there? You want to you want to light me off on this one? Huh? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay, now that I'm not encumbered by being employed by anyone, I can <laughs> I can get to the real nitty gritty here. I cannot express to you. I worked in this space for 20 years, 30 years, and basically, when when Facebook went to mobile, we took the last 10 years of all the best things we did about release and all the different companies from all the different best practices and all the release things we did and all the improvements we made on how to do things safely and correctly for customers and developers. We took all that and we threw it away when mobile came. It was like going back in time, being have ridiculous handcuffs placed on you. And uh, it was a nightmare. It is my least favorite thing. And I defy you to find one mobile developer who will say anything good about the process. The process was born with the concept of like, hey, there's probably going to be like 100 apps and they're going to update every six months. And that was, you know, mainly how every, you know, the stores work and how the, and to this day, the mindset of, of you know, specifically iOS is 100% geared for that model to this day. We had a tough time. So you going from a world where our front end and back end release, which was our world, we had total control. We could release every, every 30 seconds or every 30 days. We could figure it out. We could do it safely, correctly, what made sense for our business and to get it done. We went to mobile. We went to this world of like old style enterprise release, but it was even worse because I had, you know, four or five of the top 10 apps that we were releasing. I had the biggest user base of mobile users in the world, you know, across all those apps. And it was the most terrifying thing to take 10,000 diffs, package it into effectively a bullet, fire that bullet at the horizon. And that bullet, once it leaves the barrel, it's gone. I cannot get it back. And it flies flat and true with no friction and no gravity till the heat death of the universe. It's gone. I can't fix it. That fundamental model is is terrifying. And in fact, <laughs> my first release on iOS after I got back from a, I took a little break back, uh, I forget, 2016 or 14. And uh, I got back and, and the release process for iOS was going, I'm like, hey, you know, let me, let me take this over now that I'm back. The first release I did, I released the wrong app icon for the app. So like how many hundreds of millions of phones got Facebook with this designer holder for the app icon that it's probably, and I guarantee you there's still a phone out there from 2016 that has this app on it right so there's all these new things you need to worry about and Jocelyn kind of got into this uh, when you when you talk to her about the Facebook uh, mobile release process but ultimately let me just make the statement like all mobile um, companies should be shooting for a one-week release cycle on mobile Google and Apple are not at all geared for that, but your company is like your survival, your, your core product needs to release every week on mobile. And, and Facebook got to a one week release cycle, you know, years ago for basically all our apps that gives you the ability to, to keep your app alive and moving and keep your, your sanity as you develop your things. It's not going to make Google and Apple happy, but that's not why you're in business. 
So I can go into a lot of details about what's wrong with the mobile release process, how to fix it. We tried to fix it many times internally at Facebook because we have the size to, to do it. And there were epic battles between us and Apple and Google that were <laughs> kept us from kind of doing the, the things that need to be done. I believe these battles can be epitomized by React Native, which React Native allowed people to have dynamic, highly dynamic code in their uh, in their their mobile applications, whereas in in the world where you're just shipping an iOS binary that's written in Swift or Objective C, the review process can catch everything in the app as it's been written in that in that binary as if it's been etched in stone but when you create a dynamic javascript module that you put into your application you can deploy code dynamically to your users so you kind of can sidestep the etching in stone process that the Android Java environment or the Apple Swift environment imposes upon you. Did the creation of React Native create some tension between Facebook and Apple? So you hit the nail right on the head there. And I, I cannot express enough to, to people listening that things like React Native or any bundled kind of over-the-air delivery is absolutely critical to your survival, to your app. And I was a huge proponent of, of React Native at Facebook because it finally gave us the flexibility and the power to actually do what's best for, for our users and our process and our, and our product. So yeah, we worked on that a lot. There's always a tension more than I expected between the native developers and the ones who don't want to do native development or want to do the more React kind of based things. So that was one problem we had to get by now but to be very clear you're not going to get away from from doing native code for all the low level and performing things you need to worry about but there should be an attitude in the company uh, any mobile company that like i'm going to push as much as possible into some sort of bundled delivery system the other thing that was huge in this space was having a, a gatekeeper system or a feature flag system so we have a you know kind of a famous gatekeeper system both for front end back end and, and mobile that these feature flags can be changed via configs on the fly and updates are kind of pushed out to the to the client devices that will turn on or off features which is huge in letting you manage how things are released when they're released to whom they're released and if there's problems how to instantly turn off things if you you know having these flags available to say oh that functionality is now is, is pretty broken right now let's let's turn that off globally without having to do a hot fix without having to go to the store without having to wait 24 48 72 hours to reach your customers so yeah i cannot stress enough that and again i, and I don't care you know I, I like react native a lot but it's got to be something that gives you this control you know back to your company did it create I mean, you don't have to answer if you don't want to but did it create any tension between apple and facebook because you're kind of taking away their ability to review the apps so the the apple thread is real even after i left <laughs> now that i've been out of facebook for a while it is a very real thing that they will retaliate if we go too deep into this. They might even retaliate against you and your podcast. You never know. So yes, there was tension. And like I said, there were epic battles fought, won and lost. But yeah, you're going to take some risk with, you know, again, you Apple could come after you and, and, and things might be tense. But 
I will maintain you should do what's best for your company and for your users. You're not there to, to please Apple. You're there to do your mission, do your vision, get your, your product out there and, and do your thing. There are horror stories out there. I've heard them from any company that kind of competes with Apple for certain app space things that are, you know, the shenanigans that go on are just criminal. So yeah, I'm not going to get too deep into it, but it's it's there. Maybe someday I'll write my book and, and you'll hear, but it's a real thing. So you have to manage that, but do not shirk from it. Like do what's best. Yeah. And I think for people who want to know more about this in detail, they can just look at the case of Spotify and just read about what's, what's happened with Spotify. Anyway, shifting to engineering, describe how Facebook did version control when you were there. So we started, I think we were on Subversion when I got there. And again, this was all, there wasn't a ton of thought put into it. It's like, hey, we got to do something that works. And this is truly what every company should do. Don't overthink it. Don't plan for the next 20 years. Get something going to keep your company going and alive that won't, you know, not going to damage you. So Subversion for a while, we made the change over, we never went like full Git. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Git, at least in the applications that I need to do things, which are big companies with, with huge monolithic code bases, which was both Google and, and Facebook. So just to give you an idea, like all the Facebook front end was, was one uh, one repository. All of iOS was one repository. All of Android is one repository. Uh, repository, more or less. And there's good. You know, you've had you've had discussions about this, and, and we could debate the the merits of of kind of multiple repos and, and a single giant repo. I'm a big fan of the giant repos. The tools are where it falls over. So we took up basically making Mercurial be kind of the winner in this space for anyone who wants to do things at big scale. And the reason why was, you know, Mercurial is still living, a living thing. You can still modify it. It has the idea of modules. It's written in Python. You know, Git is stream of consciousness C code from Linus from like 20 years ago, right? So you're not going to touch it. You're not going to improve it. You can't really do anything with Git at its terminus. So Mercurial has the same concepts. It's, it's very mappable one to the other. I mean, if you're a developer, don't get religious about what, you, you know, make your company work. Don't get crazy religious about what it is you're using, get Mercurial, whatever. If it's not fitting your needs, just say so. And, and we had a team, a basically developer infrastructure team that spun off. So the release, the source control team spun off from, from my team. And, and we basically stood up a Mercurial team that very actively... Uh, develops Mercurial in open source land. We don't have a, our own kind of fork or whatever. We we basically use what is out there. That's our, we're tightly coupled to that. So in the end, we, we just to kind of sum it up here, we have monolithic trees managed by Mercurial with our own set of tools and special build processes that optimize the process to deal with things at our scale. Why don't more companies in the industry have, actually, I guess I should say briefly, Facebook has a monolithic code repository, as does Google. And a monolithic code repository differs starkly from how most companies in the industry manage their repositories, where they have a wide variety of repositories and the code just gets deployed and merged independently. There's really not an overall unification of the code base. Why don't more companies in the industry do the monorepo approach that Google and Facebook have used? I think the, there's issues with tooling support. I've never tried to do a monorepo without having a, 
a big team around me. So I wonder, I think it'd be better now with the improvements we've made to Mercurial that you could decide, okay, we're going to put this all into one giant repo and there's enough tooling support out there that we can make this work. The problem is it goes beyond just the source control system. I mean, your build system has to play nice with that. Even the the bug system and and any sort of system that needs to go into the source repository and and do things to get metadata or to get, you know, change uh, history or what have you has to be big repo aware. So we should do more to improve the tooling for starters. So that would make the water a bit more warm for people to get in. The other one is, I imagine, the problem is I get or if you're using GitHub, it's going to push you towards the, you know, the, the smaller repos, the, the multiple repo situation. So you're getting biased right out of the gate if you're stuck on GitHub or whatever. And that I don't see a great solution because if you're going to use Git, you're not going to use mono repos. So it's, I don't think it's, unless someone's doing some work that I'm not aware of, that's going to make it work. So I would love if Google and Facebook have been pretty good, obviously I'll say Facebook especially, but, but about giving as much tooling away as possible to make this work. The problem is that so much of it is specialized and you know the story. It's it's hard to generalize it enough and the effort it'll take to kind of maintain it in a good state and general enough that we can put it out there is, is non-trivial. So it's a commitment for places like Amazon, Google, and Facebook to get that, you know, make that tooling available. What did Facebook build in terms of continuous integration tools? So again, have this developer infra, this dev infra team that builds everything that developers need. I'm talking, so I was into that team for, you know, heading up a release engineering part of it. So the release tools and and the cherry pick tools and the whole continuous process and all that, we did that. But then you had teams providing developers with an IDE. So, you know, we have the Atom-based uh, Nuclide IDE that we worked on and then open-sourced languages. So all the PHP iterations of, of uh, hip-hop and uh, HHVM and all that came from us. All the, the JavaScript language improvements we did all came from this this team. The build system, Buck, came out from, from these teams as well. So we, we provide the build system and the integration with the fabricator, the diff tool, and the, the source browser. Uh, that's built in there as well. So all these tools are born from this group and all available for the developer. And this team's mission is to make developers happy. So they're constantly running surveys and running metrics and have dashboards up and down the block on how long is it taking to build these certain things? How long are developers waiting? How long are the tests taking to run? How long are the builds taking to get out? And these teams are dedicated to making that as small as possible. And Google has the same concept, same, same team idea. So that's the ultimate kind of expression of developer productivity and, and the tools that can be provided. And again, the good news is that a lot of this is put out there. You can crib a lot of this for yourself, for your company, for your startup. Um, and if you think you're going to scale huge, you can... I like the idea that if I'm going to build a company and I'm worried about scaling, I just look to places like, like Google and, and Facebook to say like, okay, they solved it. They're, they tell you how they solved it. They sometimes provide the tools to solve it. I'm going to kind of take advantage of that. So it's great that it's out there. So I was very happy to be part of that. Do you have a good anecdote of a time when you approved a release the release went out, things broke, it was catastrophic, and then it was very hard to roll back. I'd like to get a perspective for 
the firefighting process as you experienced it at Facebook? So we had a lot of fires <laughs> and there's, there's plenty of, uh, you know, it's a sensitive area. I don't want to get too detailed into to how things went poorly. I think, uh, the important thing to, to, you know, to remember here is how you deal with these kind of issues. So yes, I can remember a time when someone made a change and it, uh, basically defeated gatekeeper. So all the gatekeeper checks and gatekeeper again is this feature flag concept like you know there's there's code in on your phone right now that or code on in your browser right now that isn't being run and it's you know if you're a facebook employee then you'll see it if you're not you won't see it things like that there's like six months of development in the app right now that you're not seeing some things won't ever be seen in the light of day some are going to be great new features are going to be launched in the future imagine if that check system just went away and now all the code runs all right so that, that situation happened way, way, way back, a long time ago. And <laughs> literally suddenly, all the code? <laughs> all the code. Run all the code everywhere for everyone. So the next six months of every feature ever to be launched was suddenly live. And the reason we, we saw this was, you know, this is back in the Gangla days and we had these kind of more rudimentary site metrics and things. We just saw this crazy usage spike and network spike <laughs> as all these things turned on and started shipping more data and people were using. It's like, why are we, you know, 15% higher at this time of day than we're supposed to be? And we suddenly realized that like there were no, there's no filter. There's no checks. We're like just saying everything out loud. And we're in a panic because at that point we didn't understand like, well, what do we do? We can't, you know, I can get a fix together and push it out, but it'll take, you know, time to, to do the build and get a push to the fleet. It might be an hour. And well, we can't have every, every secret out in the world for an hour. So the, the VP of infrastructure went, logged into GLB and turned it off. <laughs> so we just turned off the global load balancer. We basically just turned off Facebook at the point of network. And we just shut down the site and regrouped and said, okay, what happened? Let's go through the history. Who broke it? Most important thing, but how to, you know, just to get them to say what happened and fix it. And I pushed out the, uh, the fix and we, we turned on the GLB and, and, Luckily, in those days, it was such a, you know, probably under 100 million users that it, uh, it just kind of went and not a huge deal. So that anecdote was kind of towards the beginning of, of when we had a more formal kind of postmortem process. And this was our, our SEV review process. And the idea here is, okay, let's not let these crises go to waste. These anecdotes are great. But what do we do after the fact is what's important. So we got all the department heads into a room once a week. And we'd go over the, that week. You know, we had like SEV1, SEV2, SEV3, SEV1 being the highest. Let's go through the SEV1s and SEV2s at least. And that turned into a more formal SEV review process where we would do this postmortem. Main thing is don't assign blame. We're not here to like do a witch hunt or to point fingers or to say, you know, this team blew it or this person blew it or whatever. It's like, what happened? When did it happen? Why did it happen? And what do we have to do to make sure it doesn't happen again? Log that, create the tasks necessary. If there's a more of a meta issue about our alerting system isn't good enough or our logging isn't granular enough or our, our, uh, our manual system for testing or for watching things is not good enough, let's resolve that you know, root issue and track it. So yeah, those, that was the, the benefit of all these anecdotes and all these kind of horror stories was that they got fewer and fewer and fewer because we'd never let one go by without picking it apart and improving the underlying system. The Google culture of 
incident response and release management. I think this is embodied in the SRE role, the Site Reliability Engineering role. How does the SRE culture from Google compare to whatever the equivalent was at Facebook? So Google really pioneered that SRE concept, that Site Reliability Engineer, back when I was there. And it's, uh, it is a special role. It's like half network engineer, half sysadmin, half programmer. And as you can tell, those are too many halves to, to put into one person. So it, it certainly started off as kind of a unicorn uh, position. And, and the SREs I've known are some are legendary in their ability to, to solve problems on the fly. But the concept of the role was kind of born there at Google, and it's certainly spread in the industry. And people call it different things, and the role's kind of a bit softer now as far as what it actually means. It kind of depends on the company. We had like production engineers at, at, at Facebook that kind of changed the role a little bit. So that role is very much, they were always our close cousins in, in the release engineering world. So these, these folks have a tight coupling between the release people the product people of what they're supporting and the ultimate responsibility for the site itself. That's the role as I understood it. And I, I've seen it both at, at Google and Facebook that it's a really critical role. You need the right people for it. There's a fair amount of burnout and, and a little bit of a, a little bit of drama in there because it is a kind of a more stressful situation because ultimately these people are their first responsibility is to the site. Is the site up? Is it healthy? Are the mobile apps up? Are they healthy? is the company's core mission, you know, are we serving? And then if they're not, they're good at both debugging the problem and then figuring out how to put things in motion or at least alert the right people to get the response ecosystem up and running because you don't leave it to these people by themselves, obviously, right? Um, they just know, they need to know how to alert, you know, how to properly get the right resources in place and start spinning up a response team uh, when things go significantly wrong. One focus of this series of episodes about Facebook is to explore the the myth that Facebook engineering was largely a replica of what had worked well at Google. My perception is that there are many ways in which Facebook contrasts sharply with how Google engineering works. How would you compare and contrast the two engineering cultures of Google and Facebook? Sure. There's, there's many people who had this experience. A lot of people, I was one of the early people who went from Google to Facebook, but there's been, you know, probably thousands who have gone from, uh, from Google to Facebook and sometimes back. There are absolutely differences. They are completely different environments, completely different companies. So I, in the beginning, people did incorrectly assume that we were a kind of a copy of the, the Facebook was a copy of the kind of the Google environment. And for sure, we took some of their ideas and, and some of the best practices, but Facebook had very much its own kind of culture organically. I'd say the differences were definitely around speed, around execution. So Google really dominated the world pretty quickly and had this leadership position and this technical excellence for, for quite a while. Facebook was a much scrappier place because they were fighting to establish a new space, although there'd been social networks around, but not at this scale. And, and the growth rate and the amount of land that we were conquering necessitated a much different culture to be able to, to move fast, to be able to make changes on a, on a, on a dime. 
Google didn't have that when I was there, at least. And I don't think it would have gotten better since I've left. So that was the big change. The other one was we were much more open about open sourcing, about talking about what we did. I, I've talked for years about all the details of how we ship and, and how the tools we use and all the secret sauce, whereas Google was not as open about sharing that or open sourcing things kind of to the extent that, that Facebook did. The, the ultimate example of that was the hardware, right? So Google pioneered the idea of like building your own servers. Like why do we need servers from Dell and HP with like USB ports and and all these peripheral things and things we don't need. I need a freaking I, I CPU, I need a CPU, I need disk, I need memory and network and go. So they, they did that. If you so much as took a picture of the rack that those things sat in, you were, you were fired, you were done. Facebook took the exact opposite approach, said, yes, we want to build our own servers. We're going to open source the entire hardware architecture, the racks, the, the, the ACDC, all the converters, the, the electrical. We're going to do something innovative in like how to deliver power efficiently to the power supplies and all this kind of groundbreaking stuff. And it was all done, you know, right in the open. So that, that's kind of, the, kind of a, an example of, of the, the cultural differences between the, uh, the teams. Engineering-wise, you had top engineers inventing you know, languages and better uh, language constructs and better tools. That was similar. And Google eventually was a bit more open about kind of having their tools cut loose. And I think lately they've, be, they've been a lot better about that. So there's some similarities there. But uh, fundamentally, yeah, different different environments when it gets down to the, uh, some of the engineering details. What do you miss about working at Facebook? I mean, everyone will say the people. I will say some of the people. <laughs> it was a very, just to be surrounded by so much ability to solve problems was really what made you go back and, and, and keep working. There were things I did not think that were solvable that we solved. And that was exciting. Also, the thing I miss is being in the center of, of what's happening in the online world. I mean, for better or for worse, Facebook, uh, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, the whole Oculus, the whole family of things going on there are very relevant to most everything in, in online life. And to be the person kind of with your finger on the pulse of that and, and you know, in my role of releasing that and, and making sure that all these things got out and were successful and could be updated and kept alive and healthy. I mean, software is a living thing, right? It's not that the, the folks who wrote Candy Crush wrote it and shipped it to iOS and said, okay, we're done. Let's go get lunch. Software lives and breathes. And like my role is to keep this software living and breathing and getting that stuff moving and rolling, getting to the customers. You know, I miss being in the middle of that and, you know, providing that conduit uh, to make sure it's done safely, correctly, and, and to the benefit of the customers. You mentioned there, there were problems that you didn't think you'd be able to solve that you were able to solve. Do you have any examples of those? I mean, so this is scaling stuff of how to serve billions of requests a second. I'm not as versed in the details of that. I just kind of saw the end result. I was in, like I said, I was in the teams that did some of that infrastructure in the back end. And I was amazed. You should have those people on to talk about how they solved like caching issues and database issues and, and all these things at, at scale. It's, it's fantastic. The one for me that surprised me was the move to a quasi-continuous deployment for the web front end. I didn't think, I mean, I thought we could do it, but we did it in one year. I announced it on April 1st, 2016, which everyone thought was a joke. <laughs> like, hey, we're going to go to continuous deployment. It was the opposite of what people expected. They like, hey, my, I let it off with like, hey, we're getting so big. And again, I'm taking 12, I'm, I'm taking 1,000, 1,200 diffs a day. 10, 12, 14,000 diffs a week, we can't go at this scale. So your normal thing is like, oh, 
man, we have to slow down. And I'm like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go faster. <laughs> and so that was something I didn't think would be as doable as it was. And we did it in one year exactly. On April 4th of 20, we announced it 2016, April 4th, 2017, we turned the crank to go to 100%. We turned the fleet over to 100% continuous, quasi-continuous deployment in, in one year. And uh, that was something that, uh, at least for my teams, uh, that was personally, you know, very satisfying and something I didn't think could, could be done. I kind of knew it could be done. I wouldn't have said it if I didn't, but you have your doubts, right? <laughs> All right. Last question. What are some engineering lessons that other companies could take away from Facebook? So I'll focus on the, the plumbing parts because that's what I was most you know, associated with. The first one, and I kind of alluded to this, is make your release process a first-class citizen. Give the right tools, the right budget, the right people to make this part of your culture and part of how you do things. Specifically, keep your release process as quick as possible. Uh, if you're doing mobile front-end, back-end, the idea of small, manageable, quick releases has proved to be quite scalable and quite beneficial. So again, you know, move to a very agile of small discrete changes that are that are much easier to review, much easier to manage. And to talk about mobile specifically, get to a one week release. Do these things as forcing functions. If you don't think you can try, because what you'll do in the process is you will flush out all the things that need to be fixed. And this is what we learned from the continuous deployment uh, move is when we made this effort and had people working towards it, all the things that weren't working well were quickly discovered. And we could put resources in place to say, okay, we can't get to a continuous process because the translation system is, can't do it that fast, or this logging system can't keep up, or this that, X, Y, Z. It's an amazing forcing function when you make a decision to do something like this. I'd be at one week mobile releases, quasi continual web, whatever it is you can do, cut your release from four weeks to two weeks. And see where that gets you. And I guess the final bit of advice is have fun with it. I enjoyed my time. I think people enjoyed working with me because I was serious and dedicated, but I also had a good attitude of like, hey, need to make this fun. I don't want to work in a sweatshop. I work long hours because I enjoy it. I enjoy the people I'm with. Make it a fun process and get it done. Chuck Rossi, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. Thanks, Jeff. Really enjoyed it. 